Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, we cover free speech and the state of free speech on a pretty regular basis on this program. And I'm delighted that today, uh, my guest is someone who is certainly a friend of the channel, Claire Fox, Baroness Fox. Thank you very much for joining us, Claire. Um, I want to start by asking you what happened last week. We saw it in the newspapers, but I'd like for our audience, if you could, to explain that you were, what would you say, deplatformed, cancelled, what would you call it? Well, I think that I was disinvited by the society that invited me, right. which they are within their rights to do. I mean, you know, you can change your mind. But of course, what really happened behind the scenes was that a debating society at the Royal Holloway uh, University of London were very enthusiastic about me going along and giving a talk on the importance of debate. Yeah. Not exactly a controversial subject, you'd think. And in order to pass muster with the student union, they'd spent months filling in forms and they were checking. The student union had to check that I wasn't a threat to student study. Anyway, you know, even though I find it demeaning that this was going on behind the scenes, I somehow passed. All was good in the world. Right. But as soon as the society advertised that I was speaking, some other societies objected, lobbied the student union. The student union then decided that I was a hate criminal of some sort and that I therefore would threaten the safety of the students. And they then went about bullying and harassing and strong arming the debating society and say, you can't have her on campus. It'll lead to security problems. There'll be people feeling unsafe. People will actually, uh, uh, um, you know, there'll be chaos and all the rest of it. And a week before the committee of the debating society panicked and said, look, we, we can't have you. And that in a way is a tale of our time and I would have left it there had I not been then approached by a number of members of the debating society mm. who said they were so outraged by what had happened, could I help them fight it mm. and get some publicity for it? And so we wrote to the student union or the free speech union, um, you know, sent properly lawyered letters to the student union and to the college authorities, to the, the, uh, uh, the uh, vice chancellor and shockingly, the letters, there was no reply from the student union and the, the principal of the college wrote an incredibly complacent and dismissive letter saying, there's nothing to see here. The student society, the debating society obviously didn't want Baroness Fox to speak. We've checked with the student union. They didn't do anything, nothing to see here. Yes, we know what our legal obligations are. Go away effectively. And this seemed to me to be the, the worst kind of leadership in a university mm, mm. that you wouldn't even investigate, go and talk to the students involved. So um, that's why it became a big news story. But what was their reason? Oh, yes. Well, of course, I've, you know, infamously now the 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 evidence of my great hate mongering um, was a, a, a tweet that I retweeted of Ricky Gervais telling a gender critical joke. Oh, like the quite famous one now. The famous clip yes. um, about uh, the old fashioned women's with w women with wombs uh, yeah. versus the, the new kind of women, um, you know, uh, we won't repeat. No, but with beards, uh, and, with beards and yeah. other things. Um, and actually, it, he um, was using what is now actually you are meant to accept by those who support gender ideology. He wasn't saying anything mm. disrespectful. He was drawing our attention to the ludicrous nature mm. of what's happened when it mm. comes to 
discussions around biological sex and trans mm. issues. It was very funny, shared by millions of people up until then. And I'd retweeted it at the time mm. with a, he's got it in one minute type of thing. I was actually a bit offended that the only thing they could find against me was the fact that I'd retweeted Ricky Gervais. I, mean, right. I kept thinking, right. goodness me, I make all these very provocative speeches in the House of Lords or through the Academy of Ideas yeah. or what have you, and this is it. Yeah. But actually, on a more serious note, it doesn't matter that I was cancelled because <coughs> goodness knows I talk at lots of places and I've got too many talks on. Right. Get a night off. What's wrong with that? And it's not as though I don't have platforms. I've got plenty of places that I can be heard. I'm here. I mean, there's a Lords every day. I've got, you know, I can write newspaper. You know, I wasn't complaining about that. What was really cancelled at Royal Holiday, at Royal Holloway, was the students' right to invite who they want, yeah. hear who they want, and even argue with who they want. Because mm. a lot of the students who would have gone to that talk and discussion would have challenged me, I assume, mm. on a range of topics. Mm. And they were denied the opportunity to do that. That was what the student union forced a cancellation of and what the college management went along with. Yeah, but this is the, in some ways the worrying thing. <clears throat> you almost expect it from the student union in an odd way, but it's the authorities of the university. They are so craven, are they not? Completely. And I've found over years now, when I've been uh, discussing the issue of cancel culture on campus, it's very tempting to see it only or always as the fault of snowflake students. Mm. And I mean, I use that phrase, uh, the snowflake generation, it does capture something. But I suddenly realized that maybe they were being scapegoated somewhat because, mm. you know, so students say, I'm so thin skinned that I can't hear something uncomfortable. I don't want that to be uh, in my curriculum because it's offensive, et cetera, et cetera. What you'd anticipate would be that the academics on campus, mm. and particularly the academic leadership of a university, sorry, <coughs> the academic leadership of a university would challenge them and say, look, the whole point of coming to this university is that you will be confronted with ideas that mm. you're not familiar with. You might find a bit distressing sometimes, certainly will challenge your uh, prior uh, uh, prejudices or views. Because actually, that's why you go to university. I mean, if you didn't change your views at all while you were at university, what is the point in going? Are you surprised by the fact that they don't do that? I mean, when were you at university? When were, sorry. Very long time ago, well, in, so the, I, in the 80s. Same yeah. here, late, uh, late 80s, <coughs> early 80s. That. It was extremely political, but I don't recall any particular debate about free speech. It was just the level of extremity, you know, in the politics, but... There was, at the well, I was at university, actually. Interestingly, there was a very big no-platform row that happened at Warwick University in the early 80s that I actually was involved in. But this was an attempt by the university to, or the student union, rather, to bring in a no-platform motion yeah. that said that they wanted to ban extremists such as the National Front, and mm. then they captured up in that anti-abortionists. Mm. So at Warwick University at the time, there was a very large anti-abortion group. But it's also the case that we were living in a society in the early 80s in Coventry, um, because I was at Warwick University, where 
the National Front were, would literally go around in gangs of 20, 25 and hang mm -hmm. around and they'd often come on campus. Now, I was arguing for free speech, no ifs, no buts, mm. even then. But at least then the no platforming was intended to be against what they considered mm. to be extreme. Now what's happened is a much more insidious broadening out of who is described mm. as extreme, mm. what views are captured by that. And it's not formal no platform policies that are used. It's often safeguarding, yeah. safe spaces. So the excuse for me going on campus or being uh, prevented from going on campus was that I represent, represented a threat to the safety of the students because we've <coughs> now conflated physical violence with um, words. Yeah. And of course, once you do that, and we've seen this recently, once you say that somebody's views are the equivalent of punching someone in the face, then you're effectively saying that if you don't like those words, you're given a green light to punch mm. them back. Mm. If we can't tell the difference between words and physical, uh, you know, violent acts, then you can see that mayhem ensues. And so when you say, was I surprised? No, I wasn't surprised. I was, however, I was particularly incensed by the, uh, the tone of the principal's letter, which I felt didn't take the issue seriously. Mm. And I think that in today's climate, and there is a pushback by all sorts of people, that at least if you're an academic leader, you've got to now take note of the fact that there's this censorious climate emerging, yes, from the bottom, um, from students, particularly from student activists and student unions, and particularly around the issues of gender. I mean, that's a, mm. a particularly harsh one, but it could even it could be anything. We know that it could be on critical race theory. It could be as as as, as limited as somebody saying something offensive in a seminar. Mm. But you'd think that therefore academic leadership would at least make an effort to pretend mm. that they cared mm. about academic mm. freedom. But this letter, it seemed to me, uh, did the opposite of that. You, you say there that there's kind of a groundswell, particularly amongst activists, of, of intolerance. Uh, are you worried, in a way that I am, when you see these surveys that show that young people, and I presume that includes students, actually quite brazenly don't particularly rate free speech? Something like, it's something like 40, 50 percent think that giving offence is more important, you know, or not giving offence, is more important than free speech. The whole concept of free speech as a fundamental principle seems not really to worry them. I think that this is the crisis that our generation have to take responsibility for, because I think what has happened is that free speech has just become a slogan. It's an emptied and hollowed out slogan. Mm -hmm. You can no longer in America say, what about the First Amendment? In, in the UK, you can't say free speech J.S. Mill, and hope that that will win you a, 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 an argument. Yeah. In other words, we haven't found ways of reanimating mm. why free speech is important for new generations. I mean, this is surely why the New Culture Forum and I hope the Academy of Ideas matter today, because we're trying to bring some new life mm. to those important foundational values, which I feel have been neglected. So what happens is, is that you can understand that, you know, you're 18, 19, um, it's not imbued in you that free speech is important. Somebody has to argue with you about why it's a value. Mm. Society 
has to have hold that up as a shining light and have explained to you the importance of it. But the adults in the room have not done that. And very often free speech is uh, increasingly it's being used to say to an 18, 19 year old, the only reason those people want free speech is so they can spout their bigotry. Yeah, yeah. Now, if yeah. you're 18 or 19, you don't want to be a bigot, do you? I mean, you know, you go to university, you think you're a free thinker and you say, do you want to be a bigot yeah. on that side or would you like to be a tolerant, kind, uh, inclusive person? Mm. I mean, anyone who chose to be a bigot in those circumstances, you'd be a bit worried about. So in a, an atmosphere where we've basically um, devalued free speech as a society, it's no longer given the prominence that it should in political discourse, in no. uh, the House of Commons, in the House of Lords. Um, people will constantly emphasise uh, equality, diversity, inclusion, you'll hear it so often, you know, the terms net zero, never off the lips of a Lord mm, in the House of Lords mm. where I am. Um, all of these things are, are given, bigged up as it were. Mm, mm. Free speech, rarely. And when I speak, often people say, oh, she's on her hobby horse, mm, her mm. free speech hobby horse, said with a sneer. Mm. Um, and then a, a recent development, part of the narrative that you're also, I know that you've covered this and it's important to state is if you uh, insist on talking about free speech issues, you're said to be trying to stir up the culture war mm -hmm. and that this is some American funded plot to divide mm -hmm. society rather mm -hmm. than actually those of us who respond to what others are doing, which is actually politicizing culture mm -hmm. and saying that, for example, whether it's a statue, a novel, a film, has to be censored, uh, given a trigger warning, is somehow evil because it doesn't reflect today's mores, all of those issues that we're familiar with. Um, we didn't raise that, other people did. I wouldn't have made a fuss at Royal Holloway. I wouldn't have talked, by the way, about trans. I wasn't intending to. I was going to go and talk about the importance of debate. Mm. But because then it was closed down, that's what created a kind of culture wars atmosphere where I said, yeah. okay, I'm going to fight this now. Interesting, you know, you say, you know, those things are, other things are never off the lips of uh, lords and MPs, net zero, whatever. One thing you never hear anymore people say is, well, it's a free country. You used to hear that all the time. Yes. When I was going, never hear it now. And it's just one of those strange little, you know, byproducts, I think. We've had an example recently of, in New Zealand with uh, Percy Parker of what you might call extreme bullying when it comes to free speech. Um, very much in line with what you're just saying, what struck me is that there hasn't been a single comment from a senior politician, unless you can correct me there. I don't, I don't think there has. That is surely the kind of thing which actually is going to intimidate people into not being free with their speech. Exactly right. I mean, I think one Conservative MP, and I can't forgive me remember his name, but to his credit, when asked by Julia Hartley Brewer on Talk TV, did right. side with Posey uh, Parker. But you, I can tell you now, in different circumstances, there'd be urgent questions, demands mm -hmm. for debates in the House and so on and so forth. If this was a different issue and it involved a UK citizen being treated mm -hmm. like this, and how interesting is it that one of the other popular uh, causes in 
parliament, but outside amongst activists, is violence against women and girls. Mm. So everybody wants to talk about violence against women and girls. It's a bit of an amorphous term. You know, as a woman, I'm, you know, good. Society's caught up and says violence against women is not a good thing. Thank mm. goodness for that, eh? Mm. But isn't it fascinating that here we had a very high profile example of a woman from the UK who was mobbed in a violent attack in New Zealand, evidence on camera, so we all know about it, hit the uh, headlines of the media around the world in many instances, and suddenly all of those supporters of violence mm. against women and girls go quiet. They mm. don't mention that as an example. So apparently it's okay to use violence against Posey Parker because she's the wrong kind of woman with the wrong kind of politics. And another way that this has become legitimized, and we're seeing this more and more, is that you describe your opponents as Nazis mm. and fascists. And that somehow is then used to victim blame, to justify the violence. Now, of course it is true. You know, if you told me in all seriousness that um, some Nazis were gathering, and, mm. and I took you literally to mean Nazis, and the kind of uh, exceptional, vicious violence. I mean, it's not even a way to describe the Holocaust, but you know, mm -hmm. if you can associate it with that, well, of course, you know, I would, <coughs> I would be unlikely to go, I'll have a cup of tea with Hitler in a chat. Mm -hmm. You join the resistance mm -hmm. as people did. Mm -hmm. That's the way you think of it. as something that needs to be dealt with. Now, if you have the promiscuous use of that label by people in senior positions in society, We've had the London mayor, Sadiq Khan, implying that opposition to his expansion of the low emission zone is a far right, conspiratorial, Nazi aligned moment. I mean, it's just thrown about all the time. If you say that to people, surely what you're doing is saying these people are not legitimate to debate with. And mm. what's more is it's perfectly reasonable to target them with yeah. absolute hostility and indeed if you use violence, not that it's incited, but if you use violence, we'll understand it mm. because after all, you're anti-Nazi, anti-fascist, yeah, you yeah, know, the yeah. anti-far movement. And, and this is a very dangerous development because I've seen people getting whipped up to think, and they genuinely believe that Posey Parker is some kind of a fascist who's, mm. and so they then think, well, anything goes, yeah? This is a very, very serious state of affairs. But you're right that the biggest problem is not those demonstrators, but the fact that people in leadership positions in the media, in politics, in, you know, the beyond pensant of this country, of any country, are not absolutely speaking out against it. And showing, therefore, those young 18, 19 year olds are a bit confused that there are two sides to this story, that they should at least consider that mm. maybe the importance of free speech is is something to consider rather than simply going close them down drive them out drive them off the stage yeah i mean you talk about the bien pensant and and the lawmakers you're now right in the middle of them aren't you in the house of lords there is this bill going through which you've i think written about two or spoken about which is the um, higher education freedom of speech bill can you tell us what's happening with that because it's really quite important it rather you know, it rather confirms what we've been talking about, kind of craven approach. Um, from what I can gather, there were certain provisions in it 
which came to the Lords, which were then thrown out. Can you explain what? Yes, this is a very important bill. I think it's worth saying that I had to really be persuaded to support this bill because I was worried that we use legislation too frequently to deal with social and cultural problems. And was this another example of a law that was going to tackle cancel culture on campus? Mm. And maybe it was evasive and avoiding tackling the really deep rooted problems we've been talking about. But I was persuaded. I, I listened to people like Kathleen Stock and colleagues and I thought, actually, maybe we do need to up the ante when it comes to legislation. So I threw my lot in with the Conservative government, which is um, something I have to think about, at least. Mm -hmm. It's not something I do spontaneously or naturally, and decided I'd support their new bill. And it was fascinating as it trundled through the Lords the first time round because it became apparent initially that the majority of people on the opposition benches were denying that there was a problem of cancel culture on campus. They were just saying, was ever thus, we all went on demos, this is completely not necessary. That actually shifted a little, but I, 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 I then realised that when people were standing up and saying there is no problem on campus or you're exaggerating this problem on campus, you should spend more time at universities as I do. And I was kind of looking at these people. I don't know everybody in the Lords, you know, mm -hmm. on either side or, and, and um, in, in all of the parties. I, and some of these people I'd never met or seen before. And what I discovered was that the Lords is full of a particular type of um, a person familiar with universities. That is, they're all vice chancellors. Yeah, yeah. So, it, yeah. so, so, yeah, yeah. so then I realised, oh, <coughs> so when you say you ought to go to universities, mm. well, what you're saying from your ivory tower, quite literally, mm is we haven't got a problem like that on our campus that I run. Yeah. You know, I deny yeah. to say, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. These are exaggerated, mm -hmm. confected culture wars mm -hmm. issues and so on and so forth. So they presented quite a formidable lobbying group and there were backbench Tories um, involved in this as well. I don't want to make out it was just Labour or Lib Dem. It was crossbench, all the sides of the house effectively gathered together to defang this academic freedom free speech bill. So they wanted to remove the section of it, which mm. would allow easy access to being able to sue. On the part of uh, academics who want to sue. Academics or students who could, eat, who could simply use the taught part of the bill mm. to say, if you uh, deny me academic freedom, I will, I will, I, I have, I can go to the law courts if necessary. Or lose a grant, maybe. There was a wide range of ways mm. that you could deploy that. Mm -hmm. So it meant that the enhanced free speech academic freedom duties in the bill, which for the first time, by the way, would put those duties onto student unions as well as, as, as universities. Mm. And the reason we needed these enhanced duties is because the law already says that all universities have an obligation to free speech. So it was an attempt to, you know, mm. make it a higher threshold. But that really wouldn't count for much unless you had some deterrent angle. So the first thing that, um, that, that we realised was a problem was when the government, and this was the government, about their own bill, compromised on the tour and basically accepted getting rid of it. Um, and the Vice-Chancellor's lobby in the Lords were so excited that they pushed any attempt at tour out so it went back to the Commons and I and then I understandably the government were so annoyed that their compromise had kind of ended up with them being defeated 
that they then went back to their original harder position on taut. This is too technical. And this takes no, well, no, no. It's quite important. It's quite important. This takes this takes months. You're talking this about is months. months. So only so we've all been waiting for it to come back. So I, I, this is you know what happens in legislation making. Eventually, we get a date for this Commons return of the bill with the new enhanced tort in it, and I was all ready to speak. And because of what happened at Royal Holloway, I was going to, for once, really enthusiastically welcome that the mm. government had got its backbone back, and say to them, these students. At Royal Holloway, being really abandoned by everyone, we'll be grateful. And I'd got there, you know, I talked to them about this, that they, that, that they could use this important legislation. 20 minutes before that debate was going to occur, the government ministers in the House of Lords issued a statement saying that they'd accepted a compromise amendment from Lord Willits, David Willits, who is one of the people who did not want taught in the bill. And so we were stabbed in the back by government ministers right. 20 minutes before, completely. So my speech took a rather different tone, <laughs> um, let's put it that way. And um, a, a lot of us who were the free speech, you know, peers, I suppose, were so shocked. Mm -hmm. And also because we weren't expecting that to occur, mm -hmm. um, there wasn't lots of people in because it was going to be a fairly straightforward, uh, you know, effectively the Lords would end up accepting what, what the Commons has said because ultimately the Commons have sway. But this was Lords Ministers. Yeah, yeah. So on behalf of the government, I mean, who knows whether the Department of Education are happy with those Lords Ministers, but they did that and they did it right at the last minute. And the explanation by um, Lord Howe, uh, uh, Earl Howe, Freddie Howe, is, um, was that He'd spent a lot of time listening to his fellows in the Lords and he'd heard their concerns and so on. Mm -hmm. And of course, you realise that who he'd been listening to and talking to in the Lords were all these vice chancellors yeah. and college principals. I mean, talk about, you know, captured institutions. He hadn't spoken to any of us who were on the more free speech side and he certainly hadn't spoken to any academics who de have demanded this uh, legislation or any of the students who were victims of cancel culture, as I've described. So as a real betrayal, it's we're now at the stage where it's gone back to the Commons. And I think that the, the embarrassing difficulty for the Department of Education is, you know, do they stick with the ministers in the Lords or do they try and have some kind of compromise come back to us or do they let this bill through? And by the way, with this compromise amendment put forward by David Willits, which is now part of the bill, to be honest with you, this bill could mean nothing. Yeah. It could be yet another box ticking exercise. And indeed, the principal at Royal Holloway said, we are very aware of the new legislation in place. We are going through it carefully with the student union, see what our obligations are. And you could see them just with their red pen ticking you know yeah. it's a box ticking exercise oh, that's very different to oh my goodness we better change because if we don't the the compromise just to explain would mean that eventually you could go to court but only after you had gone through every other possible measure mm -hmm. internally in the college yeah, yeah, now yeah. think about that for those mm -hmm. students in mm -hmm. royal holloway yeah that means that they would have had to go to the people who actually had uh, caused the problem in the first place. Well, it's just not going to happen, is it? It's not going to happen. 
it's too many hoops to jump through. But what's more is you're effectively going to the university and saying, you know, please, will you help us sort this out? Mm. And they're saying there's nothing to see here and we're not going to do anything because mm. they mm. don't want to fuss. Mm. So actually, you're throwing those students under the bus. Can you imagine a, an academic in a university who feels that they're not getting a grant because of their gender critical views or because they're critical mm. of critical mm. race theory? Um, and and it's the the you know the ethics body uh, like we've just seen in King's where an ethics group at King's College has refused a uh, a research uh, proposal on the basis that they didn't use the correct mm. language mm. in terms of they say that they were misgendering and so on and so forth they refused that's the ethics committee you'd have to go and complain about them within your own institution yes yes. Kathleen Stocking, Sussex University, was driven out by colleagues from her own institution with no support by the Vice-Chancellor. Do you think, I mean, to look at it, 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 it really in, the, in a broader way, <clears throat> do you think this really does, as many people that I know would say, this is the death knell, actually, for universities, this kind of thing, that in fact it's sort of finished, particularly the humanities, although it's really creeping in everywhere. Humanities particularly are prone to this kind of groupthink, orthodoxies in view, that, you, uh, that are permissible. But do you think that this really is, I think it's what Roger Scruton said, that the humanities are gone. Um, the whole thing basically is gone. No, I don't think that. But obviously you can bend the stick and, and, and indicate that's the trajectory. But one of the things that is fascinating is that there are sort of so many, as indeed Roger Scruton himself was, dissident academics mm. who continue to do what they can to introduce new generations to the important uh, aspects of knowledge that they need to, uh, you know, be familiar with in their different disciplines. So the diff the problem is, is that as as institutions, you're completely right. And yet within institutions, there are always people who fight back. So I've been gratified that we've had the rise of um, academics for academic freedom. They're springing up in universities. We know that the Free Speech Union has done a huge amount. Yeah. My own colleagues who run Living Freedom are putting on events around universities now that are introducing people to people like John Locke, uh, some of the great thinkers, the foundational thinkers, um, saying what can we learn from series that's what yeah. living freedom does and they've got a residential for 18 to 30 year olds largely students who go to that to familiarize themselves with the philosophy the history and, and the politics of freedom and to update it and to yeah. think what how we can win these arguments so i do think there is something of a of a fight back it might be a, a minor one i i also know many academics who even though they have to do it in a clandestine way, will be interested in, you know, this interview, in some of the documentaries that, that you make, mm -hmm. will be mm -hmm. introducing their students to alternative <coughs> ways of seeing things. So I think we have to see that there is a kind of guerrilla warfare, metaphorically, of course, going on on campuses. One of the problems, of course, is for many students they are not encouraged to be free thinkers. Mm -hmm. That's not the climate. They do see going to university in a rather contractual way. You know, we've paid mm -hmm. our money, we want to pass. You know, what job are we going to get? So the pursuit of truth and pursuit of knowledge is 
is is is an ideal that some maybe a minority go for but which is quickly stamped out of them um and undoubtedly a lot of them are almost not indoctrinated it's too strong a word but they 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 just assume to have the correct opinions mm. on a range of political issues mm. that doesn't allow any debate or discussion and that is incredibly dangerous in terms of echo chambers not allowing a broader society to have discussions about important matters and what we can all be worried about is that all of those students and this is a huge number of mm. members of the population you know the ideal is that they want there to be 50% it might be 30 30 Five, mm. 40% of young people go to university. They end up, where do they end up? In the civil service, yes. running society, running the institutions. They go off and work in museums. And then we wonder why museums are cancelling their own collections. Well, the education that the many of those people will have got will have told them that that's the correct way to behave mm. without even a debate. And so what, what I'm more worried about is that, 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 that they are reproducing the norms that we all end up fighting and so it seems i just don't want to give up on the the ideal of the university i want mm. to keep fighting for those students who go there with a different endeavor in mind that they really genuinely want to learn mm. to to acquire knowledge to create new ideas and they might be a minority i think they're probably a larger group than we hear from because they're chilled out and silenced by cancel culture into not opening their mouths. But that doesn't mean they're not there and they're not listening. So it's up to us grown-ups to give them something to listen to. <coughs> I think uh, I would entirely agree with that. There are, I've, I've, I've met such bright younger people actually, but they, they do have independence of thought. They somehow have managed to slip through the net, you know, and that includes un universities. The thing that worries me, I suppose, a bit clearer really is that, um, and we know this from the NCF because we have our local locals groups and people, is that the great sort of under-publicised area, of course, is ordinary people yeah. at work uh, who basically now really are pretty confused about what they can and cannot say. There's a kind of air of confusion. And, uh, you know, they can get fired maybe. Um, and that, I think they seem to have very little power. You know, students do have yeah. vice-chancellors, even if they're not, you know, going for this bill. But they, the other people don't seem to have, and I don't think unions help them too much either. But one thing I wanted to, um, just to, to move on to, actually, you recently chaired a meeting by the Bayes Business School, I think, which was about these sort of issues. It was about how difficult it is to be a contrarian. Now, you know, you're also, director of the Academy of Ideas, aren't you? And founder as well, the yep. founder of that. Um, which was not exactly, is it right to say contrarian, but it was just like, it's like a, well, I've spoken to myself, it's like a huge platform for all sorts of discussion. Um, do you think that that side of things, just simply in the public sphere, is actually under any kind of threat? I mean, would, do you sort of think twice when you're doing the, you know, the battle of ideas, for example, every year? Do you think, oh, shouldn't have that person or that? Do you ever? Yeah. Well, I think that the, the <coughs> notion of contrarianism is a slightly difficult one. Um, I really admire Ali Mirage, who set up the Contrarian Prize, mm. and I know what he was trying to do with it. I suppose I have a, a, a slight anxiety that there's something peculiar about it. If somebody says black, you say white. 
you know, that it yeah, feels yeah. a little bit like mm. I might have been a contrarian at school, but it's something I wanted to grow out of. Mm. A lot of people, however, would describe myself as a contrarian. Probably they describe you in the same way, because what's happened is that what I would consider to be reasonably mainstream opinions stemming from the Enlightenment, stemming from, you know, mm. the great thinkers historically have suddenly become seen as unpalatable minority cranky views mm, how mm, did that happen mm. and so um one is contrarian as much as i'm prepared to say that just because something's become an orthodoxy i'm not going to go along with it people might say that i'm just going against the grain mm. but actually it's because what has become an orthodoxy isn't challenged very much and i and i think it's that we have an obligation to challenge if we disagree with something mm. i don't challenge things i agree with mm -hmm. I, I but but there's not very many people who are prepared to speak out and this you know the issue we were talking about of campus culture and cancel culture has spilled out of the universities as you mm. indicated just a moment ago into workplaces largely driven by hr departments mm. but a broad cultural shift has occurred and there is a way that you you feel completely that you don't know the language you mm. know am i going to say the wrong thing mm. i'm actually constantly feeling and i'm i'm kind of not exactly easy to cancel but i i i feel as though i'm walking on eggshells you know mm. I, i'm not quite sure oh you know did that yeah am i pushing things because actually it's very unpleasant to be demonized as mm. you know as a as a you know as some kind of extreme far-right extremist or you know i mean i kind of got used to the kind of gammon label around brexit mm. but constantly being uh delegitimized in that way is unpleasant mm -hmm. now i mean i'm a baroness right i mm. mean if you're just like going to work every day the last thing you want is for your colleagues to be talking about you as though you're some kind of a, a mad awful you know with terrible views and some people shy away, I think. Mm. Now, one one thing that has made me really reflect on this is we haven't just got a free speech issue here. We've got a new problem, which is compelled speech. Mm. Because you might think in an atmosphere like that, well, I might not say anything. Well, that's not allowed either. Mm. You're told you have to actively mm. say, I support taking the knee. Mm. You have to actively say, I support uh, trans uh, gender identity you're not allowed to go well I'd rather not say or you know this mm, is just mm. at work you know there you are or pronouns people will say and the good example yeah. is pronouns because mm. it's enforcing it mm. wear your pronouns on your yeah. on your lapel uh, use those pronouns mm. you suddenly see all these complete people you've known for a million years suddenly using their pronouns in their in their um, social media descriptions and you think in their LinkedIn especially their professional you know that they haven't d chosen to do that. Mm, that's mm. kind of compelled speech in order to get by. Um, and so that's exactly one of the problems. There's a thing where there's a, there are people who are called race mentors and race mentors jobs, often in the civil service and, uh, uh, um, uh, and, and some of them now are diversity mentors, or to go around and encourage healthy conversations about race mm. and diversity. What's a healthy conversation? Mm. Can you imagine? being sidled up to by one of these people who says I'm here to encourage you to talk healthily about you'd be terrified yeah. you'd be yeah. absolutely terrified that you say the wrong thing but you'd have to say something so what happens is people 
follow scripts in order not to fall foul of these mm. uh, uh, these terrible speech codes and so on. In other words, we're encouraging society to speak in bad faith. Mm. We're telling young people not to think out loud and say, I'm not sure, can I ask, you know, but to actually follow a script, the correct script will get you by, which effectively is an assault on what you described earlier as a free society. We can't say what we think, even if what we think then is something that can be challenged and you might change your mind. I mean, I've certainly changed my mind many times mm -hmm. because I've said what I think. Somebody else said, what a load of rubbish that is. We've had an argument and I thought, oh, what I thought wasn't any good. I'll reflect again. Yeah, yeah. But that you're, you can't even move in that direction. Mm -hmm. You have to follow the, 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 the given script. I find that really worrying. So on contrarianism, I can understand that contrarianism is something that people will shy away from because you don't want to lose your job. You mm. can literally lose your job. Mm. Um, mm. But if we, if we effectively marginalise dissent, scepticism and contrarianism, the minority view, the awkward squad who ask difficult questions, we will never, ever, ever move forward as a society. We'll get stuck. It's the death of intellectual life. Well, aren't we in that state? We are. We, we are, but... You know, we're not yet jailed for it. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, for me, this is a reflection of, you know, you'll know that my his, historically, I'm from a, um, a left-wing background. I was the publisher of LM, Living Marxism. <clears throat> and uh, I was a Trotsky, so I never liked the, uh, the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union. But I just wanted to make that point because I'm not unaware of mm -hmm. the fact that what we are living through now feels to me to resemble what it must have been like to live in Eastern Europe under Stalinism. That's why they're so hot on. Uh, this is one of the one of the reasons given why some of the Eastern Europe and Central European countries are very hot on these issues because they know what it's like. Exactly. So you you feel all the time. You know, I I never thought that I would live in a situation where you would not be able to speak out loud in case your neighbour reported you. Whereas we live in a society that's actively encouraging the neighbour to report on you, mm. and that actually if the neighbour doesn't report on you, then they are done for guilt by association. I mean, effectively, that's what we're saying when we have these uh, equality, diversity and inclusion officers going around like workplaces checking on what people think and what they say. I mean, it's it's remarkable. And so in, in that sense, it's almost becoming an obligation to be a contrarian or a dissenter mm. if, you're in, if you're in a position that you can. I mean, yeah. I'm always wary of saying, you know, I always worry. I do actually do a lot of talks in, you know, sixth form and, uh, 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 and school, schools and universities, you know, there's usually a few walkouts, but you know, there are some teachers and lecturers who in, insist actually in a good way of allowing different views to be heard and students wanting that. When I do that, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly aware of the position I'm in, which is I want to call them to be courageous but I don't want to expose them. Yes, They're young people yeah. at the start and I, and I know yeah. how vicious it is. So actually, I'm much more interested now in talking to the academics and saying, come on, you've got to form a form of solidarity with the students. And that's what we've done with this Living Freedom series, actually, which is it's academics working with students. So it's not either or getting putting on events for students, but both together. What, what is how does this, excuse me, Claire, how does it actually work, this Living Freedom? Yeah, so it's just a <coughs> series of, of lectures. We, we, they've just started being rolled out. They're, they're, they've done some in Cambridge, they've got some coming up in Oxford. 
going to Durham uh, and going to various universities where they're just it's kind of aimed at first years you know yeah, yeah. what can you learn from as I said what can you learn from Locke um, but what can you learn from um, Simone de Beauvoir what can you learn from any number of, of, mm, the, of mm. the classic thinkers where you get two people in to give the lecture and then a, a group of students are able to ask but it's an update it's not just a historical it's what can we learn from yes and they've proved to be great success because in a way you can have these discussions and what the academics people like Araf Ahmed um, uh, working worked with us on uh, the Cambridge events what we we trying to do is to encourage students that he said just haven't got familiarity with the mm, history of mm. ideas but also haven't got the confidence necessarily mm. to to associate themselves and you don't want to just be because this is what I was going to say about some understandable reactions to this climate of uh, conformity is to be outrageous mm, mm, I mean especially mm, you know mm. so some free speech societies say we're not having this cancel culture, so we're going to invite Tommy Robinson on to camp. You know, it's almost like to be provocative, you know, and that can be a bit irritating mm. because it's that's a bit contrarian for the sake of it, mm. rather than actually trying to create a discussion and uh, and debate and a, a space in which people can not a safe space, but a space in which actually you can have these intellectual arguments out. Mm. Uh, and I think that that's why, as I say, contrarianism is something which is an important concept, but it shouldn't be treated immaturely. And I, I don't like myself that kind of like, we're going to go for the shocking. Mm. In, but, you know, I, I understand young people, <laughs> they're going to do that kind of thing. I suppose the reason that people maybe want to, to shock, you see this in the arts in a, in a way. Well, actually, you don't see it anymore no, in the arts. That's no. the last place you see it. Um, is that... It doesn't really matter, it seems, whether it's of a high quality, when you're talking about freedom, yeah. or the high quality, i.e. Salman Rushdie, and, or whether it's of a very low, what you might call, or what would have been characterised as, say, like Charlie Hebdo, a cartoon. People say, oh, well, you know, um, deliberately put on. No, no, no. These things are always going to now Well, fall exactly. I, 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 you're, you're spot on there, because the truth is, the original part of this conversation was about me being cancelled for um, from Royal Holloway for giving a talk entitled The Importance of Debate. Mm -hmm. I mean, I might as well have gone in saying I'm going to show that Charlie Hebdo magazine, mm -hmm. wouldn't I? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. if you can get cancelled for something as anodyne as mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. then you can see what happens. It's also the case that there is a danger, and we've seen this in the reaction to Posey Parker in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Which is she's basically because Posey Parker has got a very uncompromising style, absolutely won't compromise. You know, she's got a very direct way of explaining her views on sex versus gender, very uh, upfront, no messing, no, you know, mealy mouth uh, approach there. Not necessarily the way I deal with it. But because of that, people are saying she deserved what she got. Yes. And we've seen this um, actually mm. because this has been particularly galling in relation to things like um, the issue of the Batley Grammar School mm. teacher, which is, well, if you go around showing provocative images of Mohammed, what can you expect to happen? And it's like, well, what you can expect to happen is that as an RE teacher, you're allowed to carry on without a mob outside the school that exactly. then threatens you with violence and you have to go into hiding. But. Therefore, you're absolutely right that I can understand that it doesn't matter whether it's provocative or not. I'm simply saying that I want 
to rehabilitate or uh, the, the notions of free speech as being an important value. And I just don't want to overdo it in terms of a caricature of it. That's the point mm. I was trying to make. You, you just finally, you, you asked me about um, how we get on with the battle of ideas. So we we try not to be, we, we, we don't try and be unduly um, uh, provocative. We try and have discussions uh, around, you know, if you have a hundred panel debates on everything that from science, you know, uh, ethics, uh, morality, religion, politics, and all the rest of it, you're going to cover a lot of subjects. But it doesn't matter how well thought through they are. We produce those very carefully. We think about who we're inviting. We try and invite a wide range across the political spectrum. Um, that we, we found that it doesn't make any difference anyway, because even something as straightforward as our, our slogan, free speech allowed, is considered to be an extremist position. Yeah, yeah. Our very yeah. well thought through curated panel mm. discussions are uh, accused of being you know, full of hate mongers trying to stir up the culture wars. I mean, you think, for goodness sake. Mm. So that, of course, in, doesn't encourage people to be nuanced. But I think we do have to stick to our intellectual guns mm. on this one. I mean, I know how to do black and white headline, you mm. know, clickbait. I have no problem with other people doing it, but I'm not doing it. Yeah. I, I'm very clear and i think that some of the work that you've done here at the new culture forum has been very important you know you you who who needs your documentaries some would say you mm -hmm. know just have a headline mm -hmm. you know what mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. all you have to do is go i'm anti-woke you're woke mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. but actually you know that you have a role that's more educative in a way mm -hmm. you know you want to do in-depth uh, interviews but also in-depth investigations and i think that that's <coughs> what society needs i think that's what we owe uh, that generation because they need to actually have access to some very good quality challenging material well yes and also uh, you know going right back to how we started talking about younger people who seem not to care about free speech my reasoning is quite simply that quite often they don't know what they're meant to be no. defending they don't know what is so special about it and they don't, for that matter, know what is so special about the society that maybe has produced it. Exactly. And so they've got to know somehow, or I hope they do. That's one of the reasons for that. Um, before we um, uh, close, just uh, actually very topical this week, um, I think that something that really concerned me uh, was looking at a clip you might have seen on Twitter of Richard Dawkins speaking to Piers Morgan. And it's the first time I think I've seen that on this free speech issue. He just wouldn't answer. He wouldn't answer various questions. I think they were about um, Sh Shimmer Begin and, uh, and Salman Rushdie. And you might put that down to the particular topic of Islam. But the fact is, um, he was not going to put himself in that position. And, and I sort of, uh, I'm not condemning him for that. To me, that is an absolute product of people not speaking up free speech in the way that they should. I, I, I was shocked by that mm. clip. I think what it shows you, and I've noticed this myself, which is that many people will come up to me in relation to the gender issue and say, well done, yeah. I agreed with you. Mm. Absolutely. But they're whispering it. Yes, exactly. And you, like yeah, they're looking around. Now, by the way, these are these are eminent senior members of the House of Lords, right? Mm, so mm. they're not exactly in a position where they're frightened for their jobs. 
I mean, it's been very gratifying that so many members of staff, by the way, you know, uh, people who work in the House of Lords have also gone up and said, Ricky Gervais, love what you do. Yeah, no, that's yeah, been nice. But senior polit political figures avoid certain topics, mm. gender being one of them. What I thought was fascinating about that um, Professor <coughs> Dawkins uh, point was that he's actually got himself into trouble over the gender issue and mm. been quite firm on it. But he wasn't touching the issue mm. around radical Islam. Mm-mm. It was almost as though he was frightened. Mm-mm. And maybe it's that you think, God, I'm already under cash on one thing, I'm not going to go there on another. But when you see senior figures, you know, in public life, mm. frightened to speak out, then I think we do live in a fairly, you know, there's a sort of tyranny there. And we watched him do that. Most of the time we don't witness somebody going, I'm not speaking. But what I've noticed is, is that in the House of Lords is they're just absent from the room when the controversial issues are discussed. Absolutely. They've yeah. conveniently got something else on. Or we've noticed it when we organised the Battle of Ideas Festival, when particularly people on, you know, left-leaning, liberals, more mainstream, you know, many mainstream commentators who've, you know, spoken at the Battle of Ideas over the years, they maybe not now. Because there's also the other thing that's happened is they try and one of the tactics used against those of us who are arguing these kind of more difficult positions are dealt with as a kind of guilt by association. So you'll, you know, you'll get somebody who'll say, look, I know I've spoken about ideas before, but my mates are sort of saying that you're mm. like a, mm. associating with far right mm. conspiracy mm. mongers on mm. this, that and the other. So, but... A couple of them admit it. Others just say, oh, sorry, can't make it this year. Yeah, yeah, but when yeah. you start seeing a pattern, so I think what, what we're seeing is a chilling effect. Mm. It's very difficult to make that numerically count for anything. But I think, therefore, in a funny sort of a way, that interview was helpful, but terrorising. That somebody, I mean, he's the most outspoken. I mean, mm -hmm. goodness knows. The idea that Richard Dawkins would go, I'm not going there because it might offend someone. You think, you are kidding me, right? You say the most offensive things, lots of things that I disagree <coughs> with that I find offensive. I don't he, think... Was, he was actually like, no, I don't... I yes, don't he to. didn't even start... He didn't get mealy-mouthed. No, no, he just... I don't... No, I'm but I'm saying we witness somebody yeah, doing what we yeah. know happens daily. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that that's a perfect example, though, there. Uh, I don't blame him, actually. I, I think it's a perfect... Oh, I, I know. Perfect example there where all you needed... Was a reasonably senior politician yes. to say, Do you know, I've just seen this clip, or even tweeted and say, I'm appalled at this. We believe in free speech. Just to back the man up. I understand. And it's also the case, yeah. by the way, that <coughs> cancel culture makes cowards of us all. Mm. And I don't want to imply in any way that I don't understand it. Mm. And you are right to ask me, and I've tried to say, I'm not so brave. You know, I try and speak out, but of course, sometimes I get a knot in my stomach and think, oh no, I don't want to speak on this way. I know what will happen. Mm -hmm. And so I'm suggesting that when people in positions of authority who really are quite hard nosed, hard thin, mm -hmm. you know, not thick skinned, when we're frightened, when we're kind of looking over our shoulder, can you imagine what it feels like to be? a young teacher, mm. a young plumber, a, a, a young uh, uh, student, everyone, 
people who are starting off in life, trying to make their way, if they know they're going to be treated as though they're like Nazi scum, oh, yeah. Yeah. you're going to be terrified. And yeah. and if you then see the people who've got authority, have got some power backing off, then we know we've got real problems on our hands. Well, Claire, look, thank you very much for talking to us about that. Uh, we have exclusive members, you know, who yes. watch. And, you know, we usually give them one question just for them, if you just hang around for a minute. Um, but in the meantime, thank you very, very much. Uh, that was Baroness Fox, Claire Fox. Um, thank you. Uh, we shall see you next week. Thanks, bye. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as three pounds per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.